Hey, Sherlock. <laughs> hey, Ben. No, no, you're supposed to say, hey, Watson. Hey, Watson. Because that's what we're talking about today. Uh, Watson was, uh, what was Watson again? Uh, you mean the, the computer algorithm? Yes. Well, yeah, Watson Watson has a few different identities now, so that's a little bit more of a complicated question than it was the last time we talked about Watson. I guess we'll learn about that in a second. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So are you saying that the computer algorithm has developed uh, some sort of a personality disorder? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, because um, this is... That's a this funny is, picture, though. It's the precursor. To, it's the introduction to pretty much any robot film there is. Yeah, I'm imagining like 2001 A Space Odyssey where Hal just has mm -hmm. several different personalities <laughs> and what would be like the second and third and fourth personalities. I can't do that, Dave. Well, I, maybe I can't. No, I can't do that, Dave. <laughs> um, yeah, so in the case of Watson, uh, the original claim to fame, as probably a lot of our listeners know, was Watson is an algorithm that was put together by IBM for playing Jeopardy. And That's actually, right. Yes. On television. Um, yeah. Uh, very famously beat a bunch of Jeopardy champions, and it was this kind of trial, uh, trial, <laughs> triumph, uh, triumph of what IBM is branding as cognitive computing, um, which I think is kind of a, a little bit of a more buzzwordy way of saying artificial intelligence, maybe. Um, but uh, yeah, it was super cool. It was not a winning Jeopardy we think of as being a combination of a lot of skills that we think of as pretty human skills and not things that computers would be particularly well suited for. And so the fact that Watson was able to win Jeopardy uh, was pretty impressive. But you're saying Watson can do more than just win Jeopardy? Nominally, yes. Um, so in the times, <laughs> yes, I think it's fair to say yes. In the times since Watson won Jeopardy, like winning Jeopardy is, uh, it's great because it gets you a lot of articles in the newspaper. Right. Publicity is important. Right. But if you're IBM, you're not going to make a lot of money that way. However, mm. you can make a lot of money if you can convince people that you... Uh, you got some good artificial intelligence, cognitive computing, whatever tools on the workbench here, um, and that you could sell them to people to solve whatever problems they think are particularly interesting or thorny. And in particular, one of the pivots that IBM has been working on making with Watson is trying to repurpose it as a um, an algorithm for detecting cancer and for prescribing different courses of treatment for people who have cancer and kind mm. of becoming a, a cancer specialist of sorts. That's kind of crazy. Like how how would how would you make that jump? I guess IBM isn't thinking of Watson as a Jeopardy playing algorithm only, uh, but the public is thinking of Watson as a Jeopardy playing uh, as a, a Jeopardy playing algorithm. Well, sure. And so, you know, I think there's a fair amount of retrofitting or, you know, refactoring that you would want to mm. do to make that leap. So I, I will not pretend. Number one, I won't pretend to be a real technical expert here. It's I think some of this stuff uh, is trade secrets and some of it is just hard to find behind a lot of the uh, the advertising and the um, marketing uh, content that you that you tend to find when you're Googling around for this stuff. Um, so I'm not really a technical expert here, but the general idea is that it's a, a system that can handle large amounts of not particularly well-structured data. So in the case of Jeopardy, it might be doing things like reading Wikipedia articles and reading 
the works of Shakespeare and reading, memorizing maps of the world and things like that. For something like cancer, what they were hoping to be able to do was feed it things like electronic medical records, have it read research papers about new mm. experimental trial results. Uh, there see. are lots of other forms of medical data that it could be digesting and to sort of assemble all of that unstructured, semi-structured, and structured data into kind of a, a map of all the relevant information for trying to do something like address cancer. That's interesting. In the past, I remember we were talking about um, medical records. And from my mind, before we talked about it uh, several episodes ago, I thought, oh, medical records, that's probably pretty standardized. Probably everybody fills out the same fields, but it turns out it's not at all the case. So even though things like medical records uh, or results of studies seem like they would be structured, they actually are not structured when you're looking at all of them as a whole. Right, right. Or if they're structured, they're all structured in different ways. And the the disparities, uh, you know, the differences, the things that make them not always totally comparable to each other can take many different forms. And so it's not even really easy sometimes to harmonize them all to each other. Now, there are groups that spend large amounts of, of time and money to, to try to reconcile this problem. And I think that in general, it's something that medical researchers and people who are trying to do big data analytics on things like cancer data sets, like they're well aware of this and are trying to come up with solutions. But in general, for reasons that we don't have to get like deeply into, yeah, there's a lot of structural inertia that, you know, doesn't really encourage that being the first priority of like a hospital or a medical group for them to think a whole lot about harmonizing their medical mm. records for for research purposes. Right. So it's pretty hard stuff. Um, and the thing that we want that I wanted to talk about a little bit today is actually a case in which this hasn't been going particularly well because I think it's a it's an interesting case study to try to dissect a little bit. So this is a case that comes to us out of MD Anderson Cancer Center, which is in Texas. And so MD Anderson and and IBM made an agreement a few years ago that they wanted to try to do a joint venture to address several different types of cancer using Watson. And this sounds really great. It's using Watson in a way that IBM is really excited about. It's trying to solve this really thorny problem. MD Anderson is really excited about it because uh, they get to be on the forefront of making these cutting edge tools. And in particular, I think they were interested in this tool once they developed it in kind of licensing it out or selling it to other cancer centers. So they were hoping that this was a, an investment of sorts on their end. And to make a really long and, and kind of complicated story short, it didn't, it hasn't gone very well. <laughs> um, we're, we're a few years down the road from the initial agreement being signed and IBM and, and MD Anderson, it looks like are, are parting ways right now with a lot, of, a lot of work that has been done, but not anything that's ready for kind of going out into the world yet, which by the standards of these kinds of projects uh, is, is what you need to have to sort of show success. And it's been a pretty expensive endeavor also to not have anything production ready to show for it. it there's been about $60 million, $60 million that mm. has been spent uh, in this. And so uh, there's, a, <laughs> there's a lot of, I think, introspection slash uh, not always saying super nice things 
in the press about about what went wrong here. Mm -hmm. So going through this reflective period, uh, have we figured out what did go wrong? Like, was this something that we could have seen before we spent $60 million on it? Uh, I, I know that these days, people seem to be quite keen to throw money at things that have buzzwords, right? And uh, machine learning, although it's not a buzzword, is a buzzwordy kind of a thing to an investor. <laughs> yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> I think that there's two answers to that question. And the first is, was this foreseeable from a technical perspective? Mm. And unfortunately, I'm not in a great position to answer that. And I tried, I tried to find some research on this to understand from a technical perspective, like why it was so hard to try to get the data. My understanding very high level is that, like I said, there's all this different kind of data that you need to feed into Watson to kind of like teach it, so to speak. And that that data collection and cleansing and harmonization and pipelining process turned out to be much more difficult than anticipated and sort of not as they couldn't automate it as much and in general like the data was too unwieldy for what they thought they could do with it at a very high level and I wasn't able to find a whole lot of technical details on what exactly was hardest about that there were a few anecdotal things like one example is that apparently MD Anderson changed their electronic medical record systems in the last few years. And so there's this challenging thing where there's a lot of historical data that isn't comparable to their new data. In fact, it sounds like Watson isn't compatible with their new system, so they can't really keep it up to date. And that's that's like an example of the kind of technical thing that I'm talking about, but I don't have a whole lot of detail here. Mm -hmm. The second part of it is, was this foreseeable from a business perspective? Like we're good business practices followed here? Or did people kind of let their enthusiasm get the best of them? And this, there's a lot more information on, maybe because it's more accessible, maybe because the, you know, it's just easier to find this information. I'm not exactly sure. But there was an audit that was done by some of the folks at University of Texas, which uh, I guess is like kind of a partner or owner or something of MD Anderson, where their auditors actually took a look at all the business deals and found that there were probably some places where the business wasn't being run as would have been ideal and probably in a way that contributed to the to the cost overruns and things like that. So then, Katie, as an expert, I, I have a question for you, which is around responsibility. And I guess uh, an expert in a field or somebody who does it every day in a field versus, say, an investor, obviously look at this um, from a different perspective, just based on the knowledge that, that each of the two parties has and doesn't have. Uh, but if you're in a space that's experimental, how can you be uh, responsible with, say, funds or the amount of effort that you put into something, right? Like if you have something that that is experimental, could potentially yield some really great results, but also might just totally flop, like how do you, how do you balance that? You know, you can keep going and going and going and then burn through $60 million or burn <laughs> through like six yeah. weeks of your time at work or, or in a personal project and get absolutely nowhere. But you also might feel like, mm, you know, maybe success is just around the corner, right? Yeah, and the sunk cost fallacy is it's, a real thing. It's, it's yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a tough question and there's no, there's no universally correct answer for this. I think that in general 
you know, with things that are particularly hypey, like artificial intelligence and trying to do things like cure cancer with artificial intelligence, um, it's important to keep in mind that one's enthusiasm tends to be particularly strong in these fields and you have to uh, be particularly wary of not getting carried away uh, and just believing what it is you want to believe having a healthy mm. skepticism so, so that's the first words, thing yeah yeah when you when you've got something like curing cancer on the on the table be extra careful of your own enthusiasm right who doesn't want to cure cancer right <laughs> <laughs> um but so that's that's the first thing. The second mm-hmm. thing, it's it's an interesting point. So the the department that I work in at work, I work in a what we call the data science research and development department. So we do a lot of fairly experimental stuff or speculative stuff. We're trying to figure out if something's even going to work in the first place. And one of the things that I think helps us think about this problem is that we're usually, we, we make a lot of effort to be clear with ourselves at the outset of a problem, whether it's experimental you know we're trying this for the first time or we've already done this before and we know that it's going to work and it's just kind of an issue of getting it there right because then your expectations around how much you need to invest in it can be affected so if you know that something should be possible and it's hard you're a little bit more willing to stick it out than if you know at the outset that it's experimental Mm. the second thing that has been helpful for us anyway is for the stuff that's more experimental for stuff that you know what it is you have to build and it's an issue of building it then you're in something that feels like pretty classic uh, software engineering territory and there's good tools for software uh, software development like project management that can help you estimate you know scope out what it is you need to build and estimate how much each thing is going to take and then you kind of go through your project and hopefully things run on time but when it's a little bit more open-ended and you don't exactly know where you're starting and where you're going to end, one of the things that can be helpful is having an upfront limit on the amount of time that you're going to spend in that exploratory research stage. And it can be a long time if it's an important problem and you think there's a lot of intricacies. You should budget plenty of time to like explore it and research it. But the place that it can get a little bit tricky if you don't give yourself a deadline is when you're you know you've you've sunk what you should have actually spent one month on this project you've incrementally one week at a time crept up to two months you know you really think you're close and then you end up creeping another you know up to three months it's whereas Mm. if you had the discipline at the beginning to to think about this pretty critically and you say like look if i haven't found an answer by the end of the first month I think my chances of finding it are, they're not zero, but they're they are probably a lot lower than I would estimate them at right now. And that's my signal that I should probably move on. I'm spending right. a little bit too many, too much resources on that. And that can be, that can be really hard. And it's, you probably don't always end up with the right call if you try to do it that way. And I'll be the first to admit that there's no perfect way to do it. But you're right that kind of giving yourself milestones along the way and being brutally honest about whether it looks like you're meeting them can help you hold yourself to account a little bit more than if you just start and kind of wander wherever your spirit takes you. I don't know that that would have completely prevented this MD Anderson IBM thing from running off the rails, but I do think that one of the things that it sounds like 
like they had these milestones in there. They had some checkpoints and it. it sounds like there were not always particular um, on the business side. They weren't always being as rigorous about, you know, making sure that they were meeting those and making sure that that they were, for example, opening up having competitive bids for like important pieces of the project, they would have like non-competitive bids, which made it more expensive. And there's some of these like kind of business best practices that, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, if they were better, it wouldn't have prevented this from happening, I think, but it would have kept it from being quite as bad as it was. It seems like this is, this is, uh, obviously a cautionary tale if, uh, for, if you are, you know, working on something that's, specific with a bunch of people and you have uh, some sort of backing and all of this stuff. But the thing that uh, I, the, the, the one thing I like about this story, uh, obviously, if you d- didn't get anywhere, that's not so great. But the one thing I do like about the story is it kind of represents, uh, in a way, that that journey as a data science uh, scientist or as uh, any kind of engineer, uh, where you're exploring a problem and you don't really know uh, whether it's going to yield any results or not and, and kind of strategies for getting to a good place with that. Obviously, in all of these cases, they're really difficult challenges, right? Uh, you go in with imperfect information. Uh, maybe you make some bad uh, engineering decisions or time management decisions, but you may not know at the time. You may not be even be able to predict whether you're making those uh, decisions badly or, or well. Um, same in some cases for businesses, business decisions. Sounds like maybe there were some clear uh, uh, negative signs, but um, yeah. but yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, we have the benefit of you know a lot of hindsight on this one, mm-hmm. and we're we're by no means uh, trying to like throw anybody under the bus here. Uh, I think everyone went into this with the best of intentions. It's just kind of as you said, a cautionary tale about how sometimes these things, even with the best of intentions, even with with you know excellent an excellent partnership in place and all this stuff like this stuff is hard um it it doesn't always work out and you should be aware of that so yeah this is this is not to say that we think that anyone was necessarily a bad actor here or uh we're not trying to throw anybody under any buses but uh we should still learn from this and try not to uh repeat mistakes that we don't have to Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.